0: All right, well, here we are, chapter 3, we're getting closer to the end of the book of James, and this was a message that was uh, originally supposed to be delivered last week, as some of you uh, may know, Um, but there was an incident at the Nick's household. Uh, I was sick and a very weird experience, got up in the middle of the night feeling like I had stomach flu, Uh, got out of bed and at some point uh, passed out, hit my head. Uh, My wife comes in to find me just completely out, and uh, didn't know what happened, felt cold and shivery, and so uh, ended up at Palomar Hospital here, and um, they checked me out and and determined that I was sick and uh, (laughs) dehydrated probably, and that that probably is what what uh, contributed to the whole thing, just the feeling of just nausea and being dehydrated and getting up quickly out of bed and all of that. Um, so if nothing else, I got a great physical while I was there and got CAT scans and EKGs to uh, know that there's nothing else major wrong with me right now. Uh, so not in that sense. Um, but it's good to be back and I just want to say thank you. So many people texted me and, and even sent cards and I've, I don't think I've ever been on the, the full receiving end of, of um, you know, really being in, in, in need here and having people recognize that and reach out and man, it was overwhelming and it was awesome to see so many people that just shared their concerns and I, I really appreciate it. Um, so here we are, back to the text, James chapter 3, uh, and our passage this morning is really anchored All the way back in chapter one, in something that James says, you know, his his whole book is concerned with the essence of true faith. Uh, What does true faith look like? And he even calls it in chapter one, true religion. What, What should this true religion be producing if we are in Christ and have been radically changed by Him and are living in light of this new identity that we've been. Giving and and he says it should lead to three things in chapter one. He says this he says it should lead to a, a bridling of the tongue, caring for the orphan and widow, and keeping oneself unstained from the world. Now, this is an interesting list because as the book of James unfolds, what you realize is it's kind of an indictment against the church that he's writing to. Uh, he, he basically goes on to say, you guys are failing at all of this stuff. I mean, how often does he talk about the bridling of the tongue and how they're using their tongues as weapons to tear each other down? He, he talks about the rich oppressing the poor, the, the, the more fortunate are not caring for the less fortunate. So they're failing there as well. But then what we see this morning is he's moving to that third point in his argument, saying they're not keeping themselves unstained from the world. And this you get the sense that it's beyond just the normal struggle that we all, all deal with day to day with sin, but that they are failing to such an extent that he's even questioning uh, whether some are believers at all. And, and so he's concerned about the worldliness that he sees in the church, because when we come to Christ, as I said, there's, there's a change that happens in the believer, not just in our behavior and in our conduct, but it runs deep. It affects the way we think, the way we perceive the world. Our definition of what matters in this life changes. Our idea of what's going to make us happy and healthy changes in Christ. That act of renewal affects us at the very level of our thoughts and desires. And behavior change at the end of the day is just a symptom It's just a symptom of what's going on on the inside. Have we really been changed? Are we really living in accordance with that new nature? And so as James sees this worldliness in the church, he doesn't just jump into addressing their behavior. He doesn't just say, knock off all the worldliness. He traces it all the way back to the way they think. And so he starts by addressing what he calls wisdom, their thoughts. And this is his first point this morning. Be aware of how you think. Be aware of how you think. Because James knows that ultimately what we will defer to as human beings when it comes to how we perceive life and and what we choose to do in this life is whatever we consider wisdom to be. Wisdom is much more than just cognitive intelligence. It has to do with the way we see the world. With what we believe about right and wrong and good and evil. It's what informs our choices, and even our very course in life. So James lays before us two different types of wisdom. He says one is a false worldly wisdom that is associated with our old nature. And he calls it false because that's exactly what it is. It is out of step with ultimate reality. It is not in accordance with absolute truth meaning it is a lie, it is categorically false. But then he says there is also this godly wisdom that comes down from above that is in accordance with absolute truth and ultimate reality. It's based on who God is, how he says things are, and how he says things are intended to be. And what we're going to see is that these two wisdoms, they really couldn't be more at odds with one another. In fact, Scripture draws a clear line over and over again between the false wisdom of this world and the true wisdom of God. There are so many passages. I had to, like, trim the Scripture references because I, I had so many I couldn't get through them in time. But here's a few. One from 1 Corinthians 1.20 where Paul talks a lot about wisdom. He says this, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world or 1 Corinthians 3:19 which says for the wisdom of this world is folly with god for it is written he catches the wise in their craftiness and so the wisdom of this age he says is foolishness it's folly meaning it's errant it is incorrect And so James wants us living by this true, godly wisdom, and so he's going to lay both of them before us this morning just so we can see how different they are, and he draws three major contrasts between false wisdom and true wisdom. And these are the three areas of contrast. He says there's a contrast in the basis for true and false wisdom, there's a contrast in the spirit of true and false wisdom, and there's a contrast in the fruit of true and false wisdom. And so first, we're going to look at the basis for true and false wisdom. Where does it come from? Where is it founded? And the first thing we learn is that true wisdom comes from the knowledge of God. Verses 15 and 17 say that this is wisdom that comes down from above, meaning it doesn't co- go from the earth up as if man was giving wisdom to God. It comes down from above. God is giving wisdom to man. He is the holder of ultimate reality, and so it is in knowing Him, in having relationship with Him, that we learn His wisdom, that we understand His wisdom. And this point is made throughout Scripture over and over again. The Bible says in Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 2.6, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. It comes down from above. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians says that Christ Himself is the wisdom of God. He is the personification of wisdom, which means knowing Him means knowing wisdom. And I want you to think about that for a second. Before we come to Jesus, we don't live by his wisdom. Why? Because we don't know him. We're steeped in the corruption of our own nature, bound to disobey. But when we confess our sin and put our faith in Christ, we are brought into his family and have relationship with him. We get to know God to experience Him, not just know about Him, but intimately to know Him. And as we grow in this knowledge of God, Scripture tells us we're growing in His wisdom. And so true wisdom is based on the knowledge of God, but in contrast, false wisdom is based on the denial of God. It doesn't take God into consideration. There's no, there's no reverence for God in this wisdom. Verse 15 says, It is earthly unspiritual and demonic. Those are interesting words. Earthly, meaning it's carnal. It's of this world. Unspiritual, meaning it's it's not concerned with God or heaven or eternal matters. It's a wisdom that is based in this life and this life only. He goes so far to say that it's demonic. This is where it comes from. Satan is the author of this earthly, unspiritual wisdom. Now, the temptation is to think that he's just describing atheists here, right? A raw atheist, someone who denies God and therefore uh, lives in a way that is just earthly and unspiritual uh, naturally, but that's not the case. He's talking to Christians, saying that we can think this way. And so what he's describing here is not raw atheism as much as it is a functional atheism, it's professing God with our lips, but denying Him with our hearts and our actions. It's, it's, it's believing the truth, but living the lie. Believing in His existence, but acting like He doesn't exist. It's someone who, who doesn't allow the knowledge of God to have bearing on their philosophy of life. And at its core, this is really what the Bible calls unbelief. The unbelief that the Bible talks about so often and we find condemned throughout Scripture is never just an address to a raw atheist who doesn't believe in God. It's always found among those who profess belief but live as though they don't believe. You know, there was a, an old Scottish minister by the name of John Bailey, and he wrote a book called Our Knowledge of God. And in it, he talks about this functional atheism, this spirit of unbelief. And and this is what he says. It's insightful. He says, according to the teaching of our Lord, what is wrong with the world is precisely that it does not believe in God. Yet it is clear that the unbelief which he so bitterly deplored was not an intellectual persuasion of God's non-existence. Those whom he rebuked for their lack of faith were not men who denied God with the top of their minds, but men who, while apparently incapable of doubting him with the top of their minds, lived as though he did not exist. This is the wisdom of this world, the earthly, unspiritual, God-denying wisdom of this world. And the moral ramifications between these two wisdoms are huge. True wisdom that is is based on the knowledge of God will produce a drastically different life than the false wisdom of this world that leaves God out of the equation. And that's where James goes next. He shows us the contrast between these two wisdoms in the spirit of true and false wisdom which is how these wisdoms present themselves to the world. And the first thing he says is that true wisdom comes in a spirit of meekness. Let's look at our opening passage again. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And so he says, who's wise and understanding among you, which gives you the impression there were people saying, I'm wise and understanding. And he says, if you're really wise, then show it in your conduct in the meekness of wisdom. Remember, James is concerned about action. He's not impressed by what people claim to be, ever. He says, if you are wise and understanding, show it by your good conduct in the meekness of wisdom which is an interesting phrase. It's one of James' phrases that kind of creates dissonance, right? Meekness of wisdom. Isn't isn't wisdom supposed to be proud and and self-promoting? I mean, we expect this. And his audience would have expected it. When you look at the Jews of their day, think of their reference point for the wise teachers of their day. Remember the Gospels and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests and how they carried themselves in pride and arrogance and and boasting. This is one of the problems they had with Jesus, right? He comes and he's of a different spirit. He's humble, he's lowly, he's meek. He eats with sinners, he touches lepers, he rides on donkeys. So James is showing us that Christ is the wisdom of God and since he was humble, wisdom is obviously humble. It carries itself in Christ's likeness not puffed up in what it knows. It doesn't parade itself around saying, look at me and look how smart I am. But what we see is that in contrast to the meekness of true wisdom, false wisdom comes in a spirit of pride and self-interest. He says it's characterized by bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and boasting. And here's the thing, that makes perfect sense. That's logical when you consider where false wisdom comes from. An earthly, unspiritual perspective is all about this life and getting what I can in this life. And so when we live this life, like that's all that there is, like it's all that matters, then our goals, our ambitions, our sense of self-worth Our idea of what's going to bring ultimate joy and satisfaction is going to be anchored in this life, and this life is going to be all about get what I can for myself while I can, because it's my only shot. It becomes very me-centered. Every man for himself. It puts us in competition with the people around us. And so true wisdom is in a spirit of weakness, but this false wisdom, it's done in pride and self-interest. James goes on to say this, he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And this brings us to the final contrasting point in these wisdoms before we move to chapter 4, and it's in the fruit of true and false wisdom. You see, false wisdom, he says, leads to disorder and every vile practice. A wisdom that is is based on, on selfishness and jealousy is going to lead to all kinds of wickedness. I mean, just think about this for a second. A person who doesn't believe or lives like they do not believe in a God of judgment, has no fear of divine consequences in this life or the next, how might that affect the way that they live their life? A person who doesn't believe or understand or know God's grace, how might that affect the way that they treat people around them? A person who doesn't believe in God's justice will be vengeful and unforgiving when they're wronged. And the list goes on and on and on. I mean, think about how a person's life might be affected if they don't believe in the goodness of God or the sovereignty of God or the promises of God. And so James says this, this pseudo-wisdom, this way of thinking is capable of producing all kinds of wickedness. You know what Paul tells us? Paul, Paul gives us a vivid picture of this. He says that when the leaders of this world, he says if they would have known the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Wow! If they would have known the wisdom of God, they wouldn't have done such a vile and reprehensible thing as crucifying the Son of God. And so worldly wisdom has the ability to lead us into doing all sorts of vile and wicked things. But in contrast, he says, true wisdom leads to the fruit of the Spirit. And I want you to think of the words he uses, and not just how they find their parallel in the fruit of the Spirit, but in how they would affect relationships in church life. Because this is where James is going. How do these wisdoms affect church culture and church life? He says true wisdom first is pure. It doesn't come with foul intentions and deceptive motives. It's not looking to do wrong. It's peaceable meaning it promotes harmony, it puts out fires, it doesn't start them. It's gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial, it doesn't show favoritism. It's sincere, meaning it's genuine and empathetic, it's not contaminated with all sorts of ulterior motives. And so this morning, here's the question for us first. With all of this laid out on the table, who or what is shaping the way that you think? Is it the true godly wisdom that comes down from above, or is it the false wisdom of this world? Do you espouse what God says is true, what he values, what he says is important, what he says about right and wrong, or are we taking our cues from the world? I mean, there's a lot of issues even in our day and age that are hotly debated and and seem really confusing with all of the information that is out there. I mean, discussions about sexuality and and marriage and abortion and, and theological discussions about whether there's a heaven or a hell or if Jesus is really the only way. And my question is, who or what is shaping your belief? Because what God in His wisdom has said regardless of how we feel or or reason in ourselves, what he and his wisdom has declared true and good regarding these things are very different than what the world calls true and good. And, And I'll tell you, the pull and the enticement of worldly wisdom is powerful. It's being preached loudly in our culture, proclaiming its virtue, denouncing anyone who refuses to espouse its beliefs. It perceives the wisdom of God as foolish and archaic and narrow. Which means anyone who holds fast to godly wisdom gets tagged with those same labels. But what that means is that if the world considers you a fool for what you believe, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. It could mean we're doing something right. Because the wisdom of this world sees the wisdom of God as foolishness. It would be far more concerning if the world and its way of thinking found a home in our hearts and didn't confront us in any way and we found ourselves completely aligned with the world's way of reasoning and thinking. And so this morning, where are we getting our wisdom? James wants us to hold fast to godly wisdom found in his word. But here's why. Because the wisdom we espouse, it's going to affect the way we live. It's going to affect the desires that we have. And this is where he goes next in chapter 4. He uses the church he's writing to as a case study of what worldly wisdom produces in a church environment. And that's his second point, is be aware of your passions. Worldly wisdom produces worldly passions. And worldly passions in a church can be so destructive And there's two things that he really highlights that that he's seeing in the midst of this church he's writing to that worldly wisdom has produced. First, he says this, worldly passions have damaged their human relationships. Verses 1 and 2 says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. And so he starts by saying, What's causing the fights and the quarrels among you? Notice he doesn't just say, Knock off all the fighting and the quarreling. He's getting beneath the surface again. He's saying, What is causing this? What's beneath that? And he's saying, It's your passions. And, and, and the word in the Greek is interesting for passions here. It's not a morally negative word, it's morally neutral, meaning it's just something that we desire. And so what he's describing is desire that has grown to the point of idolatry where they're willing to do anything to get it. He says, even murder. Now, I don't think the church was full of murderers, but he's making a point that your desires have become so strong and you want them so bad, you're willing to harm the people around you, mistreat others to get what you want. These passions, he says, they're at war among you, meaning in the body. Think about what this looks like. I mean, it's, 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 it's like one, uh, you know, we have a sister over here who she idolizes having the perfect family, the perfect marriage to, to show the world the, the perfect children. But she sees someone else and, and their marriage seems far more put together. Their children seem far more put together. So she envies and she covets what this other person has. You have one person who, they look at the worship and they say, I just want hymnals. I just want songs that are written in the 19th century, 18th century. I don't want contemporary music. But then you have someone else who says, no, I want the drums and I want the contemporary music and they have these passions that are at war with each other and nobody's willing to give because everybody's in it for their own self-interest. And so what we see is that the ugly head of worldly wisdom peaking, that me-centered Way of thinking comes out. It doesn't take God into account at all, does it? It's not about what God wants and what brings God glory, how he wants things to be. It's about me, me, me. And James says they're, they're bringing this mindset into their relationships with these competing passions and, and idols willing to hurt one another to get what they want. But then he says they're even taking this before God. And that's the second effect of worldly passions worldly passions damage our relationship with the lord he says they're bringing this into prayer because when you live a me-centered life listen everything and everyone is in service to us life is about getting what we want and everyone exists to help us get what we want and so this is the heart behind James 4:3 he says you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And it's funny because first he says you don't really pray, but then he says when you do, you're using prayer to try to get God to give you your idols. You're using prayer to try to get God to give you the things that you can just spend on your passions and your desires. And the fundamental problem is the way they're relating to God. They see God as just a butler. He's just there to get me a softer pillow. He's just there to add an ice cube to my water when it gets too hot. God is here to serve me. And so instead of their relationship being about what the Lord's prayer says it should be about, you know, God, your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. They're coming to God in prayer and saying, Lord, hallowed be my name. My will be done. My kingdom come. God, serve me. Worldly thinking puts everything and everyone in service to us, even God. And so at the end of the day, these worldly passions are just the byproduct of worldly thinking. And worldly behavior is just the byproduct of worldly passions. And James has a scathing rebuke for them, doesn't he? No way to sugarcoat it. No way to deliver it nicely. He says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? This is one of the harshest rebukes we will find in the entire New Testament. And what he's basically saying is the world controls your thinking, the world controls your passions, the world has affected your behavior. You are, in essence, a friend of the world, indistinguishable from one who is not even in Christ. You are an adulterous people. He's bringing out, listen, that's so significant, he's bringing out the Old Testament prophet language here they would have immediately heard those words and it would have had so much more impact than it probably does on us because they remember what the Old Testament prophets said to the nation of Israel when the world, when the surrounding nations had pulled them away from worship of the true God and they started worshiping foreign idols. The the prophets would say, you adulterous people! And James is busting this out as he addresses New Testament Christians who are in Christ He's saying you are not being faithful to your God. And he's talking to people again who are going to church who are professing Christ with their mouths but their hearts are far from him. Their relationships are suffering. They have no prayer life. There's no desire for the things of God. They become earthly and unspiritual living for this life only. And his point is this is not what God saves us for. It grieves God. He says God is longing, he is yearning over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. To live in accordance with our new nature. And so this morning, if this is you, if we find ourselves in this camp, I want you to keep listening because this is James' word of hope to us this morning. It's not all lost. He ends with these, this beautiful admonition, which is his last point, which is be Be humbled. And receive God's grace. Right after his scathing rebuke, he comes in with this. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives more grace. Some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. And it's what we need right about now, isn't it? Oh, do they need to hear those words. He calls out their sin in such strong language, but then he basically says, but listen, no sin is greater than the grace of God. As harsh as his language seems to be and as far as they seem to have fallen, he says, God gives more grace. But then he kind of tags this little qualifier we don't like onto it, doesn't he? Ugh! God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We don't like qualifiers, especially when it comes to the grace of God. But I'll tell you what, it, we, you know we all live in light of God's common grace, but he's talking about grace that is given in Christ. And what you will never find in the Bible, you can turn the pages until your fingers fall off, you will never ever find a proud person in their pride receiving the grace of God. Ever. You will find proud people humbled and receive the grace of God. But you will never find a proud person postured in pride standing under the fountain of God's grace. You know, Jesus illustrates this better than anyone when he tells a story about two people that approach the throne of God. A Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee comes and says, oh Lord, I thank you God that I'm not like the other sinners, the cheaters and the adulterers. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of my money to you. But then the tax collector comes and he stands at a distance, the Bible says, and beats his chest in sorrow and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And What does Jesus say? He says, who went away justified that day? For all who exalt themselves will be humbled. He says the same thing James does. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. It is when we are in the dirt, when we are filthy, when we are beaten up and broken up, that God's grace finds us and lifts us up and sends us into the orbit of joy. And what this means for us is huge practically, church. And if there's one thing that we take away from this message, I hope it's this. What James is saying is that far more critical than the sin itself, than the worldliness, is their attitude toward the sin the worldly thinking, the worldly passions, God gives more grace. God's grace can cover it. What hurts us most is our pride. It's coming to God like the Pharisee in self-righteousness, denying our sin, blind to our sin, blind to our need for God's grace instead of coming like the tax collector, beating our chest in sorrow, saying, Lord, I stand in need of your grace today. This is what James wants to produce. This is why he's being so hard on their sin. He says, you got to come off your pedestal of pride and see who you really are. The actions of the proud and the humble before God are totally different. And so lastly, that's what we're going to look at. James, right, man of action. So he's going to leave us with this. What does true humility before God look like? If we've truly been humbled by our sin, seeing it for what it is, He's going to leave us with this. What would that look like, walked out, lived out in life? And this is where he concludes with the verses 7 through 10. He says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So the first thing he says is that genuine humility before God brings genuine remorse and sorrow for our sin. We see this in the words, be wretched, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning. I mean, look, the Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. We all know this is true, right? We've all been, been, been engaged in sinful behavior, laughing and excited, enjoying it, if we're honest. But you know that true humility exists when you're not laughing anymore. When you see your sin for for what it is, the destruction that it brings, when we're broken over it. So he says the first act of humility is there's a, a genuine sorrow for sin. There's an attitude that's present in confession and repentance of genuine sorrow before God. And then secondly, he says it will produce a willingness to part ways with sin. Resist the devil and submit to God. Draw near to God and he'll draw near. Cleanse your hands, he says. Purify your hearts. He is talking about someone who is turning away, willing to turn away from the sin and turn toward Christ. And you know, I've talked to people who are on the verge of repentance and here's the thing. This is a big deal to them. If if I do this, if I I turn to Christ, if I repent of being where I'm at in my heart, then he's going to ask me to get rid of something. He's going to take something from me. And my only response to you is yes. Yep, that thing that's destroying your life, your relationships, causing you all kinds of stress and anxiety. Yes, God doesn't want you to have it. He has something better. God does call us to part ways with our idols and turn to Him as our ultimate hope and source of joy and satisfaction. Good fathers take the things that are harmful for their children. And so I'll tell you, when we are lamenting our sin and when we're serious about parting ways with it, we will always find more grace in Christ. Not just grace, but more grace. Grace again. In Jesus, in his perfect sacrifice, he gives us grace again for forgiveness of sin. He gives us grace again for the cleansing of all unrighteousness. Grace again to empower us in a life of obedience. Grace again to heal our broken hearts. Grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace to the humble. And so the question is not if we'll fail, but when. And when we do, what will be our response? Will we harden ourselves in worldly thinking and worldly living by by denying our sin or rationalizing it or or holding fast to a self-righteous posture saying, I'm really not that bad? Or will we be humbled by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and run to the cross that we might receive more grace. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do tell the truth about our sin, God, but, it, but it's not to crush us. It's not to, to condemn us. Lord, but you tell the truth so that we might see our true condition and be humbled, that we might never be self-righteous, that we might always understand our need for your grace, Lord, and this morning we need your grace. God, I pray that if there are any here who don't understand that this morning, that you would make it clear to them that we were never meant to live this life alone, that we truly do need you. We need your forgiveness. We need you to cleanse us. We need you to empower us. We need you to heal us, Lord, by your grace this morning. And so let us leave here this morning, God, aware of the way that we think, Lord, holding fast to godly wisdom even when it may not make sense to us. Being aware of our our passions and what they say about what we're really worshiping in this world, what type of wisdom we're really living by. And Lord, finally, empower us to be honest about our failures. Empower us to, to not try to hide our sin or make excuses, but to bring them to you knowing that we can And that we won't be met with rejection, but rather with your abundant and inexhaustible grace.